This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Jimmy DeTraglia and David Strickland, thank you guys for coming on. And this is our third take on this report <laughs> podcast now. Now, Matt, the first uh, take, the first take, I realized after about an hour that I wasn't recording. The second take, Jimmy's audio was so bad. He sounded like, he sounded like you guys ever watch Charlie Brown? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the, he sounded like the adults and Charlie, Charlie Brown. Like, wah, 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 you know, well, that's no good. And Matt, so, this is the third time that we've done this. Oh, this, this is going to be podcast. the trick. This is going to be the trick. We've sweated hard over this now. So I feel right. like it's so going to go really gonna well. So now we're going to have to talk really fast and condense everything that we said earlier and and try to pick up where we left off. Yeah. So, Jimmy, start out by telling me a little bit about your history as a human and a hunter. All right. So I, I never took up to hunting my entire life, despite my dad taking me as a young boy. He took me squirrel and dove hunting when I was young. I think I killed my first squirrel when I was eight or nine. And um, for whatever reason, it just never stuck with me. I don't. I had plenty of opportunity. My dad's hunted for the, you know for as long as I've been alive. Uh, and is he still at never, it? Oh yeah. 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 He doesn't do it as much as he used to. He's, he's, he's older and he can't quite, you know, do it as much as he used to, but my family's got land in Tennessee and my dad's managed it very well for whitetail deer. And he kills a couple of real good ones every year. And uh, him and my mom pretty much only eat uh, venison. They don't really have to buy meat from the store. So they've, yeah, they do, they do pretty well out there. Um, so I started, uh, I fished my entire life. I was always fishing, even as a young boy. And and now I'm, you know, I still love to fish and, you know, always catch and eat, never releasing stuff. It's, I, I do it for food. And um, right about the age of 30. What do you like I to decide, fish for? What do I fish for? Uh, man, I fish for everything. Um, now that I live in South Carolina, I try to make a lot of trips to the low country and saltwater fish. And I go camping out there and I fish for sea trout and redfish and, flounder sheep's head um there's really good eating fish out there um and sheep's head are a saltwater fish not the sheep's head that the midwesterners call sheep's head which is freshwater drum i learned that when i lived in minnesota for a few years that they they call that sheep's head but right we don't those are right here in the yellowstone where i live drum but they are i mean they they are very very closely related am i am i correct I don't think so. Oh, no, really? Don't think well, don't no, those, don't those saltwater is... ones have a big odalisk in their head that people collect? The well, black drum, uh, dude, don't they, David? All fish have an odalisk. Yeah, but uh, don't they have an, okay. a, a particularly large-sized odalisk? Uh, the freshwater drum species have a large odalisk that people collect the same as they do elk ivories, but not the saltwater species. But not, okay, so that the. But man, they superficially look a lot alike. They do. They do. The the freshwater drum looks a lot like a saltwater drum. They look they look very similar, yeah. But they're not closely related. Well, they're both in the drum family. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Different genus, different species. Well, I don't want to turn this into a taxonomical <laughs> argument, but so I 
so I they have I very thin fillets. I'll say that of the freshwater yeah. ones. You'll catch this big old fish, and you'd be like, "Holy shit, man!" But then you fillet it, and there's hardly anything. But culinarily, I've never eaten one of those, so I don't know. Yeah, culinarily, I growing up, they were poo pooed, but people like them more now. Mm-hmm. Which just that's happened so much with so many wild things that people eat. They come in and out of fashion. I remember when antelope, when I first moved to Montana, antelope was considered a second class citizen. Now I know so many people that prefer antelope to any other game. I've read it tastes tastes great. Just wild game. You have to be a little bit more careful with it. You know, yeah. it, it, there's just you so much mental and you can ruin beef. There's just so much mental masturbation with all that shit, you know? What, what, I think we would say that as necessity is the mother of invention, hunger is the necessity of diverse, diversity. In oh, oh, I like it. Yeah. Hunger is a powerful thing. Amen. If, if I'm hungry enough, I'd eat a freshwater drum. <laughs> 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 got to be hungry. So I so I got into hunting probably at about the age of 30, somewhere in that time frame. And I, I just turned 40 a few weeks ago. So I think I'm, I'd say I've hunting, been hunting for about 10 years. And I, I got into it at about 30 as I started to take my health and fitness pretty seriously. And I, you know, when, when and you that was that kind the of dominating stuff, driver. Well, not, not originally, but originally I just wanted to clean up my diet and I wanted to get good quality. That's what I'm saying. The dietary thing was the initial thing that drove you to hunting. Not, not directly. So I guess it's kind of like a timeline of events. Like around 30, I started taking my health and fitness real seriously. And I started being real picky about where I was buying meat from because I wanted to get good quality meat. And then I started thinking, Hey, I should just get into hunting. I've already got a mentor because my father hunts and I've got, I can learn a lot from him. I can even hunt on, on their property. So there's no reason why I shouldn't try it out. So talked to my dad about it. And he's like, yeah, you should definitely get into it. I think you'd love it. Why don't you pick up where you left off and go grab a shotgun, go hit some public land in middle Tennessee and and go kill some squirrels or something. So I went out and did that. And, uh, I knew from the first night that I went out, um, sitting there right at sunset, I saw a little squirrel, you know, scurrying its way across an oak tree and shot, killed it, um, skinned it, gutted it, brought it home. And, you know, for me, it's nothing but just a couple, couple bites of food, but just, being out there and knowing that I went out there by myself, never even been in these woods before, really, you know, killed something, cleaned it up, brought it home. I mean, at that point, I knew that this was something I was going to pursue. Yeah. And uh, I enjoy, I, I, I enjoy squirrel meat immensely, even though oh, it's great. Small. It's great. meat. Yeah. yeah. Do, you ever time make, went on, do you ever make squirrel wings? I've never made squirrel wings. I've, I've smoked them on my grill. I've smoked squirrels and that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. It's kind of an oxymoron because squirrels don't have wings, but but no, yeah, that, that that's one of my favorite preparations is to make them like a buffalo wing, you know, I which is also an oxymoron because buffalo don't have, <laughs> don't wings. have wings. Yeah. But do you know where that name comes from? Why no. they call them that? No. Do you, David? Buffalo, New York. Yep, that's right. They were they were invented in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Okay. And the original sauce, I mean, the sauce, you're not eating a buffalo wing unless the sauce is butter and Frank's Red Hot. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what constitutes a 
legit Buffalo wing. But anyway, I digress. So, Carry so on. As time went on, I got into other things. Um, I had a buddy of mine who was real big into duck hunting when I lived in Tennessee. He was a good friend of mine from college. He took me along with him to Arkansas for my first uh, duck hunting experience. Had a great time. Um, I eventually wound up killing a deer on my parents' property. Um, as I now, what year are we at now? Uh, when did I kill that deer? I don't know. 2014, maybe 2015. I might've killed my first deer. Well, not long ago. And, uh, and then I wound up hunting real hard, uh, for a couple of seasons on public lands. I really wanted to kill a Turkey and I did, I killed a Turkey. Um, I killed my first Turkey in Tennessee on public land. Um, and then shortly after that, after I was like really getting into it, like I had started waterfowl hunting. I really liked it. I, I, I killed a deer. I killed a Turkey, you know, I'd killed lots of small game and I was really, really getting into it. I took a job offer up in Minnesota, which was a kind of a crazy thing to do for a guy that grew up in the Southeast to move up there. But, um, it was a good career move and we lived there for three years and what that's when doing? my hunting, like, what do I do? What do you, what were you, well, I, I guess, yeah, I meant, what were you doing then? But maybe that's still what you're doing. Oh uh, yeah. It's just, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm a controls engineer. So I'm an, I'm an electrical engineer by degree, but, uh, my job title is a controls engineer. I work in automation. And so I do a lot of electrical design for automated processes, a lot of robotics, stuff like that. And I also do a lot of the programming as well. So PLC programming, uh, HMI application development for the operators to interface with the, with the whole system and control it. And uh, I got an offer from a company up That's in Minnesota. Inter- we, we, we probably day-to-day use the same sorts of neurons, uh, same portions of our brains, because I, too, do a lot of computer programming in my in my job. I'm a, oh, mathemati- really? yeah. I'm a mathematical ecologist. So, yeah, our day-to-day is probably very similar, but I don't know anything yeah. about electricity, which makes me want to have you stay on after the podcast to help me figure out how to freaking get some bugs worked out with my shrimp pot puller. All right. Okay, we can we can we can. My talk family has that. a cabin in Alaska, and we do a lot of shrimp shrimping up there, and we're always struggling. Yeah, I've seen the videos. It looks awesome. Oh. So anyway, yeah. again, I, I digress. Carry on. So I lived up there for a few years. Um, kind of had to learn a different, a very different kind of hunting um, up in the Midwest because obviously it's a hell of a lot colder than it is down here. But it's a different environment. Oh, I'd rather yeah. deal with the cold than the hot. Anything. Me too. Me too. I, I was surprised how well I handled the cold. I mean, I picked up ice fishing and I was out there, you know, a guy from a guy from the Southeast, I'm out there and, you know, it's 10 degrees and I was out there ice fishing. I couldn't believe I took to it like I did, but, um, we eventually, we had our, we, we had our daughter up there and, and we got real homesick. Didn't, didn't want to be so far from family as our daughter was growing up. And so we decided to come back South and we wanted to go to Tennessee. We wanted to go back where it all started, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, South Carolina did. We wound up here. And since I've been here, I mean, man, I've just been so frustrated. I've been so frustrated. It, it's, it's not just the pressure. There is a lot of pressure on public land here. It's not just the pressure, but it's the lack of game animals. And that is a result of what David was, was educating us on, on the first take when you, when you weren't recording, but, uh, all that stuff that, that, that David talked about and probably some other things that I believe are, are factoring into it. Uh, the, the public land experience here is very, very poor. And I've never hunted in the low country where David is. I've fished down there, but I've never hunted down there. I hunt up in, in, in the upper part of the state. 
I'm told that the pressure is even worse in the low country. A lot of people have told me that, and I have no reason to believe that that's not true, but just. Would you agree with I've that, a, David? Oh yeah. Our pressure down here is threefold what they have up there. Jeez. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, I've, I've hunted public land my, the whole time that I've been hunting and, you know, I hunted it up in Minnesota and, and, you know, Matt, you know, being from Michigan, you know what that upper Midwest pressure is like. There's a lot of freaking hunters up there, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, Deer yeah. and waterfowl, unbelievable pressure. Yeah. But I saw and killed a lot more stuff up there on public land than I did that than I do in South Carolina. Because um, you got a double barreled problem, it sounds like on one hand, got bad, a lot of man. pressure and not much gain. Yeah. And one of the things that that uh, really frustrates me, and I admit that this is something I'm not used to and. I'm open to being told that I'm that I'm wrong about this, but since I've lived here, I've developed very strong opinions that are negative opinions of 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 baiting. And I didn't really even know that South Carolina did this until I moved here. But I'm looking forward know, to doing it. I'm looking forward to doing a deep dive on baiting with you guys. So if you don't know, South Carolina. Well, I, I thought like I thought we should let David introduce himself and tell us a little oh, bit yeah. about. Yeah, let's go ahead and let and David. Then, but baiting, baiting is. We're going to get into the baiting. We're going to get into the baiting. Okay. So. All right. Go, David. It's all you. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm 52 years old. I've been in the woods basically since birth. My father was uh, in the Navy and then went straight to Clemson University. I was born there. Um, well, actually, I was born just before then. Then he got enrolled at Clemson. He was a forestry major. My dad was literally taking me as a child. Back then, things were very much different. As a two-year-old, I was going to sit in and, you know, dendrology classes, all types of forestry classes, wildlife management classes. My dad was a hunter. My grandfather was a hunter. My great-grandfather was a hunter. I was blessed to be able to hunt with all of those. My grandfather didn't, my great-grandfather didn't die until I was 14. He taught me how to trap, um, how to hunt, you know, and all the hunting that we did was all, you know, natural sign hunting, hunting scrapes rub lines, et cetera, you know, food sources. Um, you know, I've hunted elk all out in Montana, Colorado, and just my immersion that led me to study that in college. And I have a degree in biology with actually a minor in environmental sciences. And for my first take, I was thinking about it with a strong emphasis in genetics and vertebrate and invertebrate zoology. So anyway, I fell in love with hunting and then, you know, wildlife ecology along the way. I was that kid that could sit still. I started killing animals at a very young age and my family dirt poor. And so we ate primarily wild game and I've just continued that in my later adult years. I wound up working as a biologist for the Department of Natural Resources. I was a biologist for the United States Forest Service. I was later a game warden for the Department of Natural Resources. I didn't really like all the bureaucracy there in, and so I got out, went into private enterprise. I started construction. A, well, the the first company I started was a wildlife management company. Okay. And which you now do, which you now do pro bono, and your bread and butter is construction, correct? That's correct. Yeah, okay. that's correct. I do pro bono, mostly a lot of large track, uh, large private land track holdings. You know, I manage anything from, I think, my smallest piece is 400 acres, and the largest piece I have is right now is around 3,000 acres. 
which I imagine lends itself to getting some, could lend itself to you getting some private land permissions, but I gather you prefer hunting public land. Yeah, so there's something about private land that I just feel restricted. And so I'm developing these consult plans. Some, you know, most of the stuff that I do on these lands now is observative and consult plans. And then I'll bring in various other people to do the physical activities, food plots. I choose all the selections, selection sites, stand sites, uh, trapping locations, et cetera. And then I have people that I've just made friends with over the years that are really good at this stuff. And so it's kind of create, I like to create an economy through what I'm doing. So I'll have farmers come in and do food plots. I have trappers come in and do the trapping. I have earthworks guys that come in and, you know, we'll cut the roads. I have foresters that will come in and do the forestry stuff for me and et cetera. But what it's allowed me to do. So these are absentee landowners? Yeah, a lot of them are just really, really wealthy individuals. Some do live on site, but the majority of them are just very wealthy individuals. And and most of the time, you know, they want to create an agricultural crop through, you know, timber harvest. But they also are guys that have a strong emphasis on wanting good, sound, wild game populations on their properties. They're also hunters. So they're... They're individuals that have done really well for themselves for the most part, um, and they're also hunters, and they're conservationists. So, and and that's that's taken me up to the point where I started seeing uh, employee regime changes within those state agencies. Started taking a lot of calls that, as Jimmy mentioned earlier, he just saw really poor wild game management, not a lot of species. That's all due to a kind of an atmospheric regime change in the type of employees that these agencies started hiring. Uh, People that were, and this is something, I I think I know where you're going, and something's happened here too, where the people in the game management agencies are less and less, do they tend to be hunters? Correct. Okay. So when I was in the state agencies, most of the people in the federal agencies, most of the people that I worked alongside were hunters and fishermen. They were conservationists. They were truly what I would call woodsmen and outdoorsmen. Now you have people that are have studied primarily in you know climate change, climate change policies, uh, endangered species, endangered species policies, and etc. And a lot of them have just straight up factual anti-hunting sentiments. Um, and so that's really changed the atmospheric direction that those agencies that are responsible for wild game management to neglect those and even do some things that are very bad for it, which led to me forming a nonprofit organization called the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate, which is how Jimmy and I met. He's one of my members. Oh, okay. This is all right. So this is an organization you started to combat what you perceive as mismanagement of wildlife in South Carolina. And you told me earlier that you have a whopping 800 and some members. Uh, 8,000. I'm sorry. Geez, I was off by a factor of 10. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I have actually the Alabama Wildlife Syndicate, the Florida Wildlife Syndicate, the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate, which represents North Carolina and South Carolina. Oh. And so okay. what we started noticing, 
what we started noticing is that what we were seeing was not just individual to our state. Which makes sense and, because we're talking about national forests, right? That's correct. That's correct. That's that's primarily. And so so though I manage a lot of public land, I only hunt 99% of the time I'm hunting uh, public land, specifically national forests or state WMAs. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that if one of the properties that I'm managing has, we're approaching or at uh, our carrying capacity due to a really good fawn crop the year before or something of that nature that I will certainly go remove some does. Off well, of the I don't, I don't blame you in the, in, in the, in the least for that. I'm always trying to clarify my stances. I don't have a problem with if somebody, somebody, if you can get permission from a private land in order to go, I mean, I still though, I prefer hunting public land when I do get permission and go on somebody's place. And that's where I kill something. It feels a little like kissing my sister. Like I would it's rather, true. I like the egalitarian component of hunting public land. Anybody can go there. And I was still able to get something by my wits. You know, yep. Yep. The, the, the challenge of harvesting and, you know, where I get my really big kicks is what Jimmy mentioned is I'm a traditional turkey hunter, meaning that, I don't use decoys. I don't use pop-up blinds. Oh, that's I use, oh, I didn't know there was virtue in that. I thought it was virtuous to call them in. Oh, it is. You're saying yes. No, we call them not in. We don't use decoys. decoys. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we don't use decoys. We don't use blinds. I'm the same way. And we yeah. we don't cheat the male sign stimulus instinct uh-huh. that is in the bird. Uh-huh. Don't cheat it by using decoys. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't have a problem with disabled or terminally ill people harvesting a wild turkey that way. I don't include youth in that category because I never did that. And when I was a youth, I was hunting turkeys the right way. I was made to, and I was unsuccessful for a very, very long time. Yeah. I, I just came out. I just decided the other night, I woke up in the middle of the night and started thinking about it. And I was decided I was opposed to youth seasons, and, but we don't need to get into that. But I just, yeah. So I think it's just sets rate, unrealistic expectations for little Johnny and Susie that are going to be hard to fulfill when they correct. get older. You know. That's correct. But, um, nothing's worth having that comes easy. That's the yeah. best way I can say it. So yeah. at any rate, uh, yeah, we formed the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate. Like I said, Jimmy's a member. That stemmed out to a couple other states. We were seeing the same type of wild game. I'm going to differentiate wild game from wildlife. Obviously, game species are species that are hunted. Wildlife incorporates those species, but all the other gamut of all the other species. We started seeing it throughout the Southeast. And as you said correctly, it is because it's a federal regime change, a federal atmospheric change. And so having been blessed with the, you know, in the other avenues of income that I have, I really just decided to dedicate my life to protecting our, you know, the traditional hunting culture and the future of hunting in general and that took me into the big political game which is what so very few hunters understand how large and how powerful a force we are up against in that anti-wild game and anti-hunting arena and i think it boils down that's interesting that that's your that that's the the realities there just briefly 
The realities here are not those. There are major political threats in the West, but they, they revolve around people trying to lock it up for themselves and make money off of hunting. Right. Not an anti-hunting sentiment. That yeah. is peanuts compared. We have that here too. Okay. So we anyway. have some of it. But, it's not but, quite as bad, but we have yeah. some of that here too. Yeah, it's definitely not. To, so the primary unfractured wildland holders in South Carolina are obviously your timber companies that are growing monoculture pines for harvest. But most of those actually, as a side note income, um, are allowed to form hunting clubs. So David Strickland or Matt Ranella or Jimmy D could lease a big timber company, 10,000 acre company, and have a hunting club on it. Um, so it's not the same as what you guys, where you have these massive private landowners that are, you know, like with that whole corner crossing fiasco that's going on out there where they're literally trying to prevent any type of hunting in their area because they are commercializing it for guided hunts. Mm -hmm. That's, we don't have a lot of that here. We do have some plantations that do guided whitetail, guided turkey hunts, but it's nothing to the same degree that you're faced with. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Our our big issues stem from that atmospheric change within the U.S. Forest Service, within the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is obviously a big thorn in the side of the Western hunter at the moment. With respect to grizzly Apex bears. Predator. Well, Apex predator reintroduction yeah. and protection. Yeah, uh, wolves. Grizz yeah, wolves. Wolves and grizzlies. grizzlies. You know, Shannon... Shannon Rommel um, is the guy who got mauled by the grizzly. And, you know, he. Well, there's been lots of guys that got, have gotten mauled by grizzlies. What do you yeah, mean? Well, he I'm took saying? it to a proactive state. Um, and. Where, where was this? Uh, give us the background on what. He, he's in Idaho. He has a ranch in Idaho. He's the guy that did the YouTube video that went viral. He's, he's holding his arm up. He's literally mauled all over. He's like, I just got attacked by a grizzly. No, that was in Montana, not Idaho. Oh, it was in Montana. You're yeah. correct. And he's in, he's in northern Montana somewhere. No, well, the, it happened in southeastern Montana or southwestern Montana. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, it, I, happened I, in the, it happened in the Madisons. I know that guy works for the forest or used to work for the Forest Service. He may have now he has like firewood business and he raises, but anyway, he started digging in that whole grizzly arena and they he got labeled the bad guy. He was just wanting them to keep the grizzlies off of him, the same way the cattle guys out west are trying to protect the cattle, sheep, goats everywhere, horses, the whole nine yards are trying to just protect their livestock. So we just got this big regime change that has started labeling us the hunter, us the ranchers, the livestock people as the bad guys. You've got this massive conglomerate of people that are love the wolves, love the grizzlies, all the way down to love the woodpecker, et cetera. And it all stems from the fact that you can just walk into a grocery store and buy whatever you want. They don't know where their food comes, et cetera. Whereas Jimmy and I and you, we want to eat healthy. We want to collect. You know, we want to know that we're putting in clean, healthy food into our body. Yeah, we, we, we pr pr probably largely agree, but there, we might, there might be, if we, if we really dug down, we might find some daylight amongst us in terms of degree 
I, I don't know. I, I don't have a settled position. If I had to push a button that made wolves in the West go extinct, I'd, I'd be, I don't think I'd push it. No, uh, no, but uh, I. It just, yeah. So I, 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 for that matter, but they I'm need worried. to be managed. They need to be managed. That's the term. They need to be managed appropriately to the carrying capacity of the landscape. Right. And with them, and with a mindset that there are a lot of people that want to hunt. And there's a lot of communities that make their economy from hunting. Right. Right. So anyway, that's, that's who I am. You know, I'm a hunting rights advocate and lobbyist and that's, you know, my life revolves around hunting. I probably hunt public lands in a bad year, 90 days in a good year. I'm out there either on public land or water because I'm a big waterfowler as well. 120 days out of the year. That's what wow, I do. That's great. I, 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 I'm probably not quite to, that's a third of the year. I'm not probably at that level. Like I, maybe a little less, but you and I are very similar. I mean, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time hunting and fishing and, and, but unlike you, and I think this is very interesting. Somehow, I don't have an, a, a background in advocacy. I the sum total of my advocacy would be when I was ten. I wrote a letter to my governor saying that I thought I should be able to hunt with a bow for deer, and then. When I was in my mid-20s, I got freaking pissed off at Cabela's because they were taking the money I gave them for gear and using it to buy property that I used to be able to hunt through the block management program out here and buying that land and then selling it to for, so that people could have exclu- exclusive experiences and that felt deeply wrong to me and then i was on the board of backcountry hunters and anglers for a time we had some disagreements and i left that and now and now david i'm probably as immersed in advocacy as almost as much as you are i'm now all of a sudden in the last six months Devoting, well, I give you a, an devoting eight hours a week or 10 hours a week to it, yeah. which is yeah. mind boggling to me because I have a pretty demanding career. But uh, so let, let so, me interject. Real yeah, quick. go ahead. I'm going to give you an equation that I came up with. As Jimmy will point out, the reason that I founded the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate was because a multitude of people that I had met during my tenure at the Department of Natural Resources, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and hunting other states started reaching out to me going, this doesn't add up. What the state's doing here is the opposite of common sense, or what the feds are doing here is the opposite of common sense. I dug deeper and deeper and deeper into it, and what I found at the bottom root of this equation, you may think I'm crazy, wild game management is what produces wild game. If we neglect that, then wild game 
populations decrease. Now, wild game management entails anything from season dates to bag limits to size limits and you know a full gamut of legislative. It can be you did all the proper habitat maintenance, but you don't trap and et cetera. So far, I don't see where I could possibly disagree or where you'd think I would, but no. Well, this is not a disagreement. I'm gonna lead you into this equation. But you, but yeah, but you said where I'm gonna, you, I'm gonna think you're crazy. It's like, that, oh, okay, that, yeah. Here's where you're gonna think I'm crazy. Is okay. the equation. So we know that there's a massive and has been a, a gun grab trying to weaken the Second Amendment. So I started thinking about it, and I'm seeing these state and federal agencies neglect and or do negative damage that's your your double negative right there of the night to <laughs> does that mean they're helping yeah yeah no, <laughs> they're double being bad they're not helping. yeah so i put together this equation it just popped into my head if you wanted to get rid and or weaken the second amendment one of the most ingenious formulas there would be for it, which is what I see is in play, you would decrease hunter satisfaction. How do you decrease hunter satisfaction? You would decrease game animals. That decreases hunter success. If you decrease hunter success, now you have decreased hunting recruitment. If you decrease hunting recruitment over the long game, not the short game, 10, 20, 30 years, now you have decreased the backbone of the Second Amendment supporters. Now, we're always going to have our shooters, but most shooters are also hunters. So decrease hunter satisfaction equals a decrease in hunter recruitment. How do you do that? How do you decrease the hunter satisfaction? You decrease wild game populations through two key ingredients. You introduce apex predators that are highly protected and you neglect wild game management. Okay. You're right. I think you're nuts. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, I don't, I don't think you're nuts. I just disagree. I just can't. I just, maybe someday I'll be convinced, but I just, I don't, I don't well, think, I think, that's it, the I think when you start seeing the money that floats around, then it's one of these things you're going, okay, you know, always follow the money, right? Always. And I've followed that money. And it leads back. My concerns lie elsewhere. Understood. And, and, and I am not beholden to my own opinion. You may be, you may turn out to be right. But what I see is what by my lights what's ha what's happening is that people that make money off of hunting and you're not among them but they trot out the threat of ant the anti-hunting establishment in order to make money and at a, at a larger level the quest for making money off hunting to me is the threat. That's absolutely a threat. It becomes the, the nobleman gets to hunt and the peasant does not. Right. 
It absolutely which ties does. into what I'm that actually what you're saying is also ties into what I'm saying. If you don't want the peasant to hunt, you don't allow him to have access to wild game. Right. But but I don't I see it. Okay, the, I guess the difference here is that you see it as witting. I see it as a byproduct. So people that make money off hunting, if they if they if they could choose, they'd prefer to maintain the common man's hunt quality. Desire but, to hunt. but but the, there's a if you if you if you're someone that makes money off of hunting and you strive to to maintain the common man's hunt quality that reduces your bottom line because if you want to maintain their hunt quality then by my lights the best way to do that is to stop fucking hyping up the hunting but if you don't hype up the hunting, you don't draw new people in. Without new people that lack products, you're not going to make as much money. Well, yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that money is. So yeah, I, I see it. I, I think when I look at, well, and the same is probably true for management agencies. They want more hunters because that means more license sales and more revenue. Even though that comes at a cost to the hunt quality for the existing hunting community as well. So the money is a big part, but I, I just don't see it as, as I don't, I, 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 I'm not, I'm yet to be convinced. I've never heard this argument. It's novel. My concerns lie with the role of money in hunting and everything I'm trying to do is trying to diminish it. You see, but you see something far, and but I see that as, like I say, an unintended consequence of the money making is the common man's experience being diminished. What you see is something far more nefarious, where it's witting, where hunt quality declining, it, that's being done, people's experiences being diminished is happening on purpose. To erode the Second Amendment and by design. So I immerse myself into the legislative acts at a federal and state level. I see the money. I understand population demographics. It's it's you know, it's in my spare time. What do you that's what I you're you're North Carolina is or the Carolinas both are pretty conservative states. Well. We are not as conservative as you would think. All you got to do is look at a blue and red map. We used to be extremely conservative. A a legislator in the state of Georgia, which went blue, just introduced a bill to completely get rid of the Pittman-Robertson Act. Really? Yes. It's called the the Return Act, I believe is what it's called. Right, David? Oh, 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 this is fantastic. What's the... I, I I'm I'm I have a he burning to desire to understand how what was he the logic to, there? He tried to spin it. What's the person's not, name? I can't recall his name. A quick quick web search would yeah would pull yeah, that up. Right. Um, but he tried to spin it as such as that it was unfair to hunters. 
to put an additional tax that goes back towards conservation. And, you know, my state gets like 13 million a year in Pittman-Robertson dollars. This is a person that knows nothing about what hunters value. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, every five to six years, there's a, a survey on hunting and fishing. And yeah. it's a massive, massive amount of dollars that are generated through the hunting and fishing economy. Hunting, I want to say it was in 2011, it was like, gosh, it was like $32 billion generated, you know, in 2011. What I, what a- I, what, what I meant was, I don't think hunters are wringing their hands about the tax. No, they're definitely not. wringing their hands about shit opportunity. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And they're not wringing their hands loud enough because, man, I'm telling you, this is what hunters don't understand. And, you know, you never think you're going to lose something. And, you know, just people, because of our daily lives, our daily stresses, you know, everything we got going on jobs, family, health-wise, et cetera. I think there's this thing that we fail to forget. We love hunting, right? And when you love something, I'm not so sure that it creates the daily energy to protect it, as does hating something produces the daily drive to work forward. What I can tell you, because I pit myself against anti-hunting groups nationwide, um, and here in the state of South Carolina, especially, uh, and North Carolina, Florida, and Alabama, is that these people work 24 7, 365. They donate, donate, donate. They unify. They pressure their legislators day in and day out. Hunters are sitting here. There's, there's another bill right now that is seeking to ban all lead ammunition on all of the wildlife refuges for all species. Now, we know what happened with the waterfowl bill and all that. And, you know, I got to look at it and say, yeah, I can support not hunting waterfowl with lead. But they're using, in these wildlife refuges, the bald eagle, which is well above any threatened capacity. They've done a few micro studies saying that bald eagles are dying of lead because of the fragmentations of lead bullets in animals that were not recovered. So I'm telling you what that's going to segue into if it passes is the next thing is you're not going to be able to use any type of lead ammunition in a national forest. That's my prediction. These people do not. That see wouldn't be, I mean, I, I don't know. That wouldn't, that, that doesn't make me go. Uh, I'm not aghast well, by that. No, I'm a huge lover of a copper monolithic. I reload. That's all I run is copper monolithics. I love okay, them. Okay. So carry on. I'm just saying personally, yeah. The, yeah. the, th- the threats are way graver than the loss of lead am- ammunition. And maybe it'd be a well, good thing. I don't know. There's no, for instance, quail hunting on the national forest or dove hunting, which is a huge thing in the Southeast. If you have to go to steel, which we already are having a waterfowl steel shortage because, uh, you know, all of our products that are involved. I mean, go try to buy some reloading components. Go try to buy a case of waterfowl shells right now. You can't. Right. You know, you just can't. And that's because of various other things that are happening at different levels that are attacks on our ammunition companies and our even our rifle manufacturing companies. It's just so multi-pronged that people have a hard time grasping it. So, and I may be wrong. I just lumped it all into, okay, hunting's under attack. Would you agree with that? 
let me let me before I answer that, let me say if we're gonna if we're if we're if we're going to discuss wild theories, I would argue that the that what's the American Dental Association, the ADA, they probably are the biggest anti-lead uh, um, faction. Well, my brother-in-law and my sister. I have them. a missing tooth <laughs> and three <laughs> crowns. Yeah. All from biting down on steel shot. On steel shot? Yeah. So. There's a good Do one. I think hunting is under threat? That's the whole reason I'm doing this stupid podcast that has like zero chance of making a difference. It's just to maintain my sanity. I I feel like it's going away. And I feel like the celebrities are not doing a damn thing in the hunting industry and the nonprofits are doing like nothing to combat the biggest threats. So hell yes, I think hunting is is under threat. Is under threat. So anyway, I agree with you entirely, buddy. I liked your uh, little segue there into the dental thing. That was that was a good one. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's that's what I'm doing, man. I mean, I'm I'm immersed myself with the senators, the legislators, and the walls that I hit are crazy because you know I can produce the figures, economic figures for just the state of South Carolina. I mean, we they were like twenty two million dollars a year just in the low country gets generated just for whitetail hunting, but you know, between habitat fragmentation, wild game neglect, overpressuring, and I absolutely side with you that the commercialization of hunting has been not only, it's just degenerated the quality of hunters in general, it's degenerated the reason that we hunt. Uh, Media has taken over the mindset of ethics and it's all about mine, mine, mine. And, you know, and that creates a pressure that where people just have lost their sense of ethics. And no, that's and all about, it's all about, Hey, look at me. That's absolutely. It's about, look at me. I'm a, I'm a killer, you know, yeah. I'm a killer and I want to be seen as a killer. And, you know, there's, there's some phraseology out there that's, you know, you go through different phrases of or phases of hunting in life. You know, you're the person that's enamored. Yeah, that's with a fair chase. The book Fair Chase. Yeah, and that's- and eventually you come down to where you just harvest an animal occasionally, and you highly respect the animal. There's this big bulk of the hunting population that's probably right in the center. It's this big, giant, ugly bulge of people that are like mine, 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 and it's a popularity contest that's just disgusting. And it's honestly, when it comes to turkey hunting, it's absolutely terrible for the turkey population where it's the entire Southeastern portion of our nation is experiencing an unprecedented decline in the Eastern wild turkey. And I was just talking to a guy, well, the episode of my podcast is out right now. And this will get confusing to people because I'm recording these ways in advance because I'm about to go hunting for a long time and I just want to have a, a backlog of episodes I can go have out. But his name is Tom Valens- Vineski and he 
he's an outdoor writer and a farmer in Pennsylvania. And he said the same thing there. Yeah. I've heard my brother say that everywhere that there's been a boom in turkeys in the U.S. So Michigan's another state where I grew up. There's been at some point, there's a precipitous decline in the turkey abundances. Now there in South Carolina, is that, have they always been quite high and now they're dropping or did they go up and then now they're coming down? Well, the history of the wild turkey is such that obviously during the Great Depression, they were basically shot out. Okay. People were starving. They shot right. them out. Same with white-tailed deer. Yeah. So kudos to our state agencies, our federal agencies for going in, limiting the seasons, highly restricting the bag limit, and then finding isolated pockets where there were both wild turkey and white-tailed deer capturing those species and then interspersing them to other states, which created what we call genetic vigor. Um, and out here, that, that happened out here, and, and turkeys in my state aren't even native here. Many states aren't. Which blows my mind, because how are they kicking so much ass? I mean, it just seems like they would have eventually, over the millennia, made their way here but anyway well you uh so your miriams aren't native nope in montana nope. yeah they're brought in yeah, yeah. no turkeys yeah. native here we have easterns miriams and eastern miriam crosses and none of them are native here native here yeah that's wild that's wild so obviously probably at some point there was some larger bird that dominated that landscape yeah yeah that predators could have been yeah it could have just been inhospitable to the turkey for whatever so back to that commercialization of hunting we've got guys out there that you know make hundreds of millions of dollars a year promoting non-ethical turkey hunting practices you know i mean what are those oh using decoys Pop-up blind decoys. Baiting. Baiting. Okay. So, well, and all that is open to one's own interpretation. Sure. I use... Same thing, I mean, same thing with waterfowl. You know that... I use decoys. I'm tempted to not because they're a pain in the ass and I think I could kill my turkey anyway. But didn't do it. I, I didn't know that it was taboo to use a decoy until just this well, discussion. I'll give you, you a know little what? brief. You guys, I imagine you guys really hate it when people throw up a turkey tail because holy shit. Did they oh, yeah. We don't like that. Okay. No, I, I'm learning here. I'm learning well, here. Well, let me give you, let me give you a I have a much bigger problem with technology. Well, and the turkey decoy is technology. It is a let technology, me, sure. Yes. Let me, let me just. Turkey tail very, isn't. Very quickly. You have cardinals in Montana. Cardinals? Yeah. Yeah. Redbirds. Have you ever seen a redbird slamming his head up against the window? No. Like You've he's never fighting seen himself? Correct. I've seen other birds do that. Or, okay. or in, in a rear view mirror. Correct. That's sign stimulus. It cannot be defeated. A bird, a turkey with the most incredible eyesight and incredible hearing, though they have the T-tiniest ear. And the most survival instinct, I believe, of any of our hunted species in the North American continent will literally, due to sign stimulus, march himself straight across the open field to a plastic decoy that hasn't moved for an hour and attack it. It's hardwired into them to do that. Correct. Okay. It's called sign stimulus. And 
certain birds have it, certain birds don't. Like you're not going to ever see a wild mallard swim up to a wild mallard decoy and attack it. It's not happening. Right. Now I've seen turkeys shun decoys. Sometimes they will, but that's due to testosterone levels not being right or it's a subordinate bird. Okay. Yeah. If they're not like one of the more dominant toms in the area, then they will not come up to a male turkey decoy looking for a fight. But if they are the male, the, the dominant tom in the area or one of the dominant toms in the area, they have fought all spring for that right to be at the top of the chain, to be, to be the turkey that does the majority of the breeding of the hens in that spring season. And so if they see another strutting Tom in that area, they're going in there looking for a fight because they want to smack that guy around, send him out. And they said, no, these are, these are my hens. You don't, you don't get to strut around here. This is, you're in the wrong neighborhood. It's pretty much what they want to do. So when you throw that, that, that tail fan up, a lot of these dominant Toms, they literally cannot control themselves. They, they cannot control their instinct to run in there looking for a fight and they get, and they get shot. And my opinion, and David agrees with me, is that that is not fair to the turkey. You got to give them fair chase. You got to give them a fair chance to win the battle. And sometimes you just don't win. Okay. Okay. It gets, we get, we get into deep philosophical waters here. It seems to me, if you call to the turkey, you're saying he thinks about what he's hearing and makes a decision. But if you show the turkey what he believes to be another turkey, he's obligated under certain circumstances to come over. A dominant bird, turkey, has a territorial response and an intruder response. And it all boils down to the sign stimulus. It's genetically proven. You've seen the videos of a turkey walking up to a shiny car bumper and just pecking the bejesus out of it. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. Now, how stupid is that? Now, anybody that hunts a wild turkey knows that a wild turkey is not stupid. That is the weak link. And all the way back to your point, about the commercialization and products of hunting. When you see famous television hunters out there harvesting these birds this way, what it does, I can take a five-year-old kid, I can put him in a pop-up blind and put a male strutter decoy in front of him. And if he's good with his gun and he'll sit there long enough, he will kill the dominant breeding bird at five years old with no ability to do anything other than to point and shoot a gun. Yeah. I mean, the same is true with a lot of shit though, like outfitting. If you go on leased land with an outfitter, all you're doing, the only thing you do is execute the shot. That's That's correct. If you're hunting with a guy, that's absolutely correct. So in your case in Montana, all the, all that guy did is, is shoot a $10,000 elk. You know, or maybe more. I don't know what the what the cost is out there, but oh, I know it's not. I know it's not getting any cheaper. No, it's not, that's not outside the realm of possibility. In, in in Colorado and Utah, I'm pretty sure you can spend well in excess of that. Yeah, there's some out that are half a million dollars out there. Okay, so now I'm really curious about what you guys think about other fair chase issues because 
that seems pretty peer to me what you're talking about so by extension i would expect you to have strong opinions about long range shooting and game camps yeah i have strong opinions yeah lay those lay, so where are you with the where are you guys with that stuff um in complete transparency i use on the properties that i manage I use trail cameras to help me identify herd numbers. Now I have other tools in my box, such as browse studies. That doesn't studies. matter. That's it's not. I'm talking about using the game camera to increase your chances of harvesting an animal. Have used them, no longer use them. That's me. Okay. You reflected yeah. on it earlier in the discussion. You said you cared about two things, and this was lost. And when we, when in in the when I didn't hit record, but you said you cared about hunting. This is so freaking great. I love it, David. And honor. Correct. So was that, was that your concern for being an honorable man? Part honorable of and everything. I mean, the, all you have. No, was your, I'm saying, was that why you abandoned game camps? I, well, so one it was of the reasons an honor that, thing. this is going to sound boastful. Because of the way I was raised, the amount of time that I have hunted, I can go into an area and basically tell you if there's a trophy animal there or not. Just by looking at the scrapes and rubs? and That's correct. Now, trophy to me is probably different to trophy to a lot of people. Because you're hunting public land. Trophy to you is probably a two-year-old deer. No. Trophy to me is... Four and a half, five and a half year old. In in South Carolina public lands, it's if you're shooting a whitetail that's three and a half years old because they dog drive deer in the forest that I have. So it's it's the most heavily deer pressured state that there is. Uh, killing a mature whitetail is a trophy. And I've the largest I've killed some really nice deer on public lands, but it's in the maturity of the animal. Now I'm not gonna sit here and lie and say that I don't place value in antlers because i love them i think they're beautiful and for some reason that goes all the way back to my deep deep long ago ancestors i imagine that my ancestors were the one that had the longest mastodon tusks in their cave or whatever else that's just in my blood yeah i have it too i have it too i want to shoot a great big one yeah always and so um the honor and then that wore itself out because at one time man i was running like you know not for me because i wanted to see the antlers on the deer and and there was a time in my life where i passed up four and a half year old five and a half year old whitetail which is an exceptionally old whitetail in south just because he he didn't he didn't have the genetics to make it okay got it which is dumb at a management standpoint yeah i i get that i get that you know but once in a while a friend will come over to my house and he'll have some old ass deer with some scrawny rack but i just look at those critters in awe yeah that is i don't know it's still it's it's a cool deer when it's some old ass deer that just Whatever, man. It's still like he's just as smart. Just because he has a small rack doesn't mean it was. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's a a horse with. I mean, one of my greatest trophies is a giant six point that I killed. He's five and a half, maybe six and a half years old. I don't know. I just know that he was a very old deer. Um, And 
it's one of my greatest trophies just because he's he was scarred from head to toe. And then there's another deer that I'm hunting right now. I've seen him twice, and he's just ugly. But he literally has, you know, down here in our low country area, a 200-pound animal is a really large animal, and he's probably going to field dress at a buck 85 and probably weighs 205 during the rut. And I want him so bad I can't stand it. You oh, know? so now I got to ask. I got to – where I grew up, the hunting pressure was intense on public land. And if you didn't shoot a one and a half year old buck on opening day, you had very little chance of getting a deer that year because all the legal bucks were by and large extinct after that. How in the world, given the, the pressure that you guys are describing, and the fact that you can run them around with dogs, are there deer that are living to be that old? Well, number one, it's going to be where there's the whole science to it, and I'm not going to divulge it because <laughs> it's where it involves walking, it involves water, it involves... But you're talking about how you kill the old deer. I'm asking why are there old deer? Because they have learned <laughs> some deer. Do you think you that know, they've learned strategies for adapting to dogs? Well, I know I know they have because oh. two of the big bucks that I've shot had buckshot pellets in them. So I would imagine they learned to, you know, wow. stay away from that area, wow. you know. Um, and, yeah. you know, turkeys will do the same. I've, I've killed multiple turkeys that had pellets in them that weren't hard gobbling birds. Uh-huh. They came in, they came in, they might've gobbled once, maybe twice. And I'm talking about three or four hour hunt. And they, you know, they weren't your typical bird. They weren't a two and a half year old bird that just came in gobbling his head off. So with yeah, the deer, it's got to have something to do with the terrain and how far you can get from a road. Absolutely. South Carolina compared to Michigan. It's got to have something to do with it. Well, I forget the guy's name. Um, or winter mortality. I mean, that's another thing that prevents deer from getting old in Michigan is winter mortality. So Yeah, you guys too. have some pretty big kills up there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a deer it becomes instinctual. And, you know, the only time you're going to kill them is when they slip up during the rut. But you still, they typically have a very, the big deer that I kill have a very small home range. And it's mm-hmm. a very very hard place to access and you know i'm almost to the age now where i'm not going to be able to hunt these animals the way that i used to hunt them why is that you're only 52 uh i beat myself up really bad both my knees are bad i need a replacement my left leg how far are you going uh it's not so much as how far because it might just be a mile and a quarter. It's what you got to go through to get there. And so, whereas you guys have, we don't have any topography. Mm-hmm. We have water courses that are full of cottonmouths and alligators. We have uh, thickets that are, it's called a tie bay, that are next to impossible to get through. Um, we have a swamp briar here that's, 
Yeah, he's about an inch in diameter with thorns like this. And it's like a one inch piece of hemp rope that literally weave themselves. And so my success has come through finding these isolated areas and literally circumnavigating this thing time and time again until I can find a way into it and then hunting the wind. Oh, man, David, I need you to keep going for way longer. Uh, well, hardship. I mean, like, I just do. Um, you know, the kind of water I care about. And I don't want you to give up at 53 or whatever the hell next year. I mean, come on. Oh, no, dude, I'm not going to give you up. You need I... to steroid up and keep going. <laughs> what I need is an artificial knee. Oh. Yeah, I still go. I still go. There's nobody. There's nobody that I know that knows the force like I do. I know Jimmy could hunt with me. You could probably hunt with me, but there's very few people, you know, and that's something else. I find that there's very few people that are willing to put in that effort. Yeah. Um, and so I pride myself on putting in that effort. Yeah, my dad is 77 years old, still puts a climber on his back, still archery hunts primarily. Oh, and good for he him. goes. Good for but him. He, also did, he didn't beat himself up the way I did as a young man. I'll have you know that I, like you, can suffer yeah. like a motherfucker. Yeah. That's where my strength lies. I'm not a good shot, I'm not very observant. I get depressed easily. And down, uh, trodden quite easily, but I'll stay out there and I'll stay out there for weeks and I'll suffer, you know. So I get that, you know. Yeah, it's a part that, of it, it's a part of what makes that kill so much sweeter. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Like you say, also, well, like you said earlier, anything that comes easy, it, would you say is it, it's not worth it or? Something along those lines. Nothing that comes easy is worth having. Well, yeah, there's one exception to that, and that's love. <laughs> you know, love, like real love. Real love isn't earned, in my opinion. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Talk there's one exception. But anyway, I digress. Let's move on to one of the big themes of Jimmy's initial email to me. Which is his concerns with baiting. Could you explain the baiting situation there, Jimmy, and how it's impacting hunting for 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 folks like us? So I've never lived in a state or hunted in a state that had baiting as prevalent as South Carolina. And all right, now I gotta interject again and then I'm gonna shut up. But I grew up right. in Michigan and up until the time I moved away, we baited for deer, corn and apples, really? all that stuff. And yeah, it was stupid. I, I've, I've often thought about going, I moved away at 27. I often thought about how if I moved back to Michigan, there's no way in hell I would do that. Do they still allow that up there? I don't know. I, I think they may I don't think they do. just recently, several years ago, they restricted the amount you could put out and they may have done away with it entirely. Now, I'm not sure, but it were it was effective it only would work for the first i'm talking about bow hunting it would only work for the first week and after that those deer no way in hell would come into your apple pile 
during daylight hours. Well, not during daylight. They'll be there at night. Right. But from a hunting standpoint, what didn't help you after about a week. And, but the other thing was bears. I still maintain if I move back, there's no way in hell I'd be no way in hell, but I would main, I maintain that in Michigan, you have a zero chance of killing a black bear without bait. Really? I've run into a couple of them. Uh, turkey hunting public land in Wisconsin, actually. I've run into a few. Wow. I wasn't baiting. I was just, I mean, I guess if I had a rifle, I could have shot them. I'll tell <laughs> but, you what. Uh, I, I never okay, baited. All I can say is, all I can do is operationalize my statement and work on it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I know, from the uh, time I was a little kid until the time I moved away at 27, the only black bear uh, black bears I ever saw were on my bait pile. Yeah, people do that up in Minnesota too. For the three years that I lived up there, baiting for everything else was not allowed, but baiting for for bears was allowed. Even on public land, even on public land, you could bait black bears, and that's primarily what people did. If I was king, but, uh, if I was king, I would just outlaw all baiting right now. I would make it. Yeah, I knew I liked you. So across the board, you know, I have never, I'm tempted. I have nine bullets. I have nine bullet points on my website. I keep telling Mm -hmm. people, I think that hunting, the kind of hunting that you two care about is going, is going to only get worse. Mm -hmm. And if I looked in a crystal ball and saw 20 years from now, somehow it didn't get worse, but it got better. It'd be because we did these nine things. And I, I'm, te- I'm tempted to add no baiting. Do it. I, well, here's the deal. I know that you 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 told me that that you have a social media presence, a um, little which bit, I, which I oppose, and to each their own. But I'm tempted to make a deal with you. You'd have to give up your social media in order for me to put that on there. Well, you know what? You will be happy to know that uh, I saw so I left Facebook a little over a year ago. Um, I still have an Instagram page that I gear mostly towards wild game cooking and stuff like that. But I recently made that page private and I, oh! deleted, and oh! I deleted everybody who I did not know personally, deleted every single one of them. Oh, so it's not even a bargain. I'm just going to tell yeah, you so, right now. So now I'm going to tell I, you right I, now I'm doing it. I'm all right, that's the deal. Um, all right, and it's good. The, we got to hold you to it because this podcast, people are going to hear it, and they're going to they're going to be looking for. Well, that, no, so. I know that, and and the thing is, it, absolutely. That's why I'm saying it while we're recording it because I want to make sure I remember to do it. No <laughs> baiting, no baiting. So, so the deal with the bait is, I've never I've never been around. I, I've never hunted in states or lived in states that that allowed it. Um, and here in South Carolina, man, I'm telling you right now, in, in the next few weeks, half of Iowa's corn harvest is going to be dumped on this state. <laughs> I mean, it is just covered in corn piles. And uh, one thing that that David mentioned earlier, uh, we may not have got it on the podcast. I think it was one of the failed attempts, but about the timber company land being leased. There's a lot of hunt clubs all around the state of South Carolina. and. They can range you can bait on from. private, but not on public, right? Correct. Okay. And these hunt clubs are, I'm not going to say every single person, but a very large majority of the people 
on these hunt clubs are driving an ATV up to a 200 pound pile of corn and they're shooting the deer that come out to the corn piles. And that's what they're doing. And I admit that I did not grow up in a hunting culture that, that, that was okay with baiting, but I just, and again, I could be convinced that I'm wrong about this, but I failed to see how that is considered fair chase and hunting is supposed to be done using fair chase methods. And I just cannot see the argument that somebody could think that it's fair chase to dump 200 pounds of corn in one big pile and then shoot a deer over it. No, I just, I, I don't think I about this. I don't think I about this. That. I don't think about this issue much, but now as a grown man sitting here listening to you talk, it, okay. So I keep saying that I would rather buy beef and go golfing than hunt, than lease land to go hunt. Me too. It, it, and, and now I'm realizing that I would rather take up golf and buy beef than sit over a, a pile of corn or apples or carrots or sugar beets. So I think one of the one of the real issues that I have with it, again, from aside from just like you, you just can't convince me that that's fair chase and that it's ethical at all, but it severely alters deer's natural movements and our national forest the whole perimeter is completely surrounded by timberland that is leased out for hunt clubs. And these hunt club memberships can go anywhere from like a thousand dollars to $4,000 a year to have hunting rights and they get jam packed. So it's not like, it's not like your situation where a guy will pay big money to have a huge block of land to him to himself. This is jam packed with people. Oh, so even though it's leased, it's still crowded. Way more deer pressure on leased land than on public land actually because they all want to shoot at corn they all want the easy button oh and so, so the that's the impetus the lease me, allows you to bait yeah okay. so the problem that that causes for me as a guy who hunts in the national forest is that the entire perimeter is just surrounded with tens of thousands of acres of of baited property and and in the middle of that is a national forest which has very low deer populations to begin with because of the, some of the problems that that david talked about we have a three month rifle season here. So there's a lot of deer pressure. Okay. Three months rifle season is like crazy sounding to you coming from the Midwest. Cause I know that up there, y'all have two weeks, Yeah, but we yeah. have a long gun season here. So there's a significant season. amount of gun pressure. A lot of people in those woods, a lot of people in woods that do not have really good habitat, really, they don't have really good attractive habitat for, for deer. A lot of pressure, three three months of gun season, and then you got the outside perimeter of private land that's got, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of corn dumped on it all the time. Where do you think the deer go? I mean, they go to those corn well, piles. They are and they so, get shot. They're, they're so the sated. They're so sated on corn that they just mm-hmm. go short ways from the corn pile and lay down, and they never venture into <laughs> national forest. That's, let's, let's, let me interject here so you know i've been i've the force that jimmy hunts i, I guess you're mainly in the nre district uh, yeah. the national force yeah yeah and so matt what we have is a large national force called the sumter it's divided into three districts the long cane the nre and then in the mountains you have the andrew pickens on the coast you have the francis marion so the legislators opened like seven years ago the andrew pickens was never 
allowed to that whole district we'll call it the upstate was never allowed to bait even on private lands until about seven years ago the anori district where jimmy's at you could bait there for as long as i can remember on private lands uh the charleston area the low country area you've been able to bait and run deer with dogs for as long as deer hunting has been here. It's primarily dog hunting. Still hunting is the minority style of hunting in this area. Um, the area where Jimmy's at in that national forest was a lower deer density population, mainly because of the topographical and geographical aspect of it versus the low country, which had the majority of deer because just our browse is so our growing season is longer we have lots and lots more browse density here more desirable species the reason that you're seeing you're struggling up there is and this is not me being a proponent of baiting but it's because of the negligent management that's on that national forest not because of the baiting that occurs around it and if you'll factor in, you'll actually be able to use those timber companies that are baiting to your advantage because there'll be little fringe areas around that private land where your bigger box will use as sanctuary. Because what I think, Matt, you're missing is that a timber company might have a 10,000 acre unit. One guy leases it but he can have as many members in that hunt club as he wants so they can commercialize it. He can literally make money off of it. Mm -hmm. um, get, he gets, so, so he ends up hunting for free and making a few bucks in addition. You got it. So a 10,000 acre club might have 150 members, man, or mm -hmm. a 500 acre club might have 20 members. And each one of those guys will have what's called a personal stand. And then there'll be club stands and their dues are used. You can't, you cannot harm the timber on this. That means you can't knock down trees and plant food plots. The food plots that you can plant are just going to be on your roadways. And so what they do is they'll thin out the understory and they'll put a corn, like a turkey track. They'll have a box blind that sits right in the middle of that turkey track. And they'll have three shooting lanes and they'll have a corn pile at the end of each one. <laughs> now, why do you have to have three why can't you just have one like when he comes to the just no, the that, no so what happens is obviously in the early seasons the does and the bucks primarily utilize that corn for carbohydrates there's no benefit to a deer eating corn in the south whatsoever in your northern climates, it provides, whether it's, I don't care if it's put on the ground or it's grown on stock, it provides a lot of energy. energy. Yeah, because yeah, it's dark, you know. Um, but the big, big reason that we're having deer population issues on our national forest are because we can't regulate the predators. It's illegal to trap on our national forest. And, and the habitat's mismanaged, I gather. Terribly mismanaged. Yep. Terribly mismanaged. But... Uh, you know, right now, all studies indicate that our fawn crop, we lose about 67% of our fawns to coyotes. Oh, the coyote, wow. the, 
Yeah, 67%. And some studies have shown as high as 83% of our fallen crop wow. is lost. It's terrible. It's kind no, of, it's well, why is that? Okay, in the past, we didn't have why wasn't that as bad in the past? We didn't have coyotes. We didn't have coyotes till like, what was it, like 1972? The first one was identified uh, here? Uh, and that was like a one case roadkill. We didn't truly were they, have. Were they, are they not native there? Correct. No. Oh, Correct. wow. Well, I, wonder yeah, what so, made, I wonder what made them be able to get to live there now all of a sudden. Well, so the biologists will tell you that it was a natural migration. I hugely disagree with it. We have what are called fox pens here. And it's literally a big enclosure. Like think of a big high fence deer operation down in Texas, that size. Some of them are 5,000 acres. And it used to be that you turned a fox out. You had a bunch of fox hounds, which now they use walker hounds. They put a number on the side of that dog and paint, and then they have observers at various stations. And when that fox crosses the road, the first three dogs behind him, the observer notes those numbers, and then they do a tally at the day. So observer one might have seen dog 22 in first, second place on two different observation stands and this guy, and then they tally that up, and there's big money in it. Huge money in it. These guys walk away with ten thousand dollar purses. Based on how many how many foxes their dog is in proximity to. Say that again, sir. It's based on how many foxes each dog is in proximity to. It's based on you. You've, have you ever seen the greyhound races? Yeah. Well, so not in person. Okay. Well, you know the mechanical rabbit runs around. Yep. And the dog that is closest to that rabbit wins. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Same thing. Same thing with the fox hunt. I see. But but our foxes began depopulating mainly due to mange and rabies. We had a huge scourge and some person had the there's there's two theories here. I believe both of them. Some person had the bright idea because fox is a smaller animal. It's more fragile to go get some coyotes and bring them in which is illegal. Yeah. And some of those coyotes escaped. There's another theory out there. The South Carolina has an enormous deer population. It's dropping rapidly due to the coyote, but we were having car strikes to, you know, I don't know the number, but it was a God awful number. I mean, even today during the rut, our roadways are just littered with dead deer. Mm. Um, and there's another theory that the state brought them in to control the deer population due to the auto insurance lobbyists. Mm. I'm not, I, I'm out of that argument, you know, but I can Well, see you know, to your point, between where I live and the next town over, there used to be a lot of collisions on the interstate. And now there's a high wire fence on both sides in that stretch. And, right. I've, and I've heard that that, 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 by what I've heard, I'm not. I'm open to the notion that that would not have happened had it not been for the insurance companies getting involved. Of course, of course. I mean, you think it's not just auto crashes; it's human mortality. Right? Yeah. 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 And so yep. it's a, a hugely yep. costly thing to the insurance companies. I'm not saying it goes one way or another. What baiting does do 
is it does, as Jimmy said, he's absolutely correct, and is that it will, especially in the early season, concentrate your does before your acorn drops. They will concentrate on the corn. Now, what happens is that the box will quit using that corn pile, but they will still scent check those corn piles. Mm. So mm-hmm. it does have an effect on natural deer movement. There is no doubt about it. Yeah. So there are ways to use. Could you use it to your advantage, Jimmy? Somehow. I mean, you're I not. Know. I mean, all the deer that I've killed since I've lived here have been on private land. I've I've not seen very many on public land, and believe me, I've hunted hard. David knows oh. me. David knows I hunt hard. <laughs> I've just not seen a lot of deer on public land, and. Uh, you know, not like I'm the best hunter in the world, but I've hunted in other states where I've seen a lot of deer on public land and I've killed deer on public land. Yeah. And uh, I just have a very, very difficult time here. Uh, it's It's been frustrating. So I actually joined one of these hunt clubs last season and uh, I did not enjoy the experience at all. I, and, and really the only reason I joined it was for two main did reasons. You bait? One, did you bait then? Hell no. No. Oh, no, I didn't want oh to. okay. No, okay. Well, I refused. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, I'm still... Well, what benefit do you get from hunting the hunt club if you're not baiting? I'll tell you two things. One thing is we're not allowed to hunt on Sunday on public land in South Carolina, which I find ridiculous. Uh-huh. I see. And so I had another day to hunt because, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a working stiff. I work Monday through Friday. I only get I the see. weekends to hunt, so I want an extra day to hunt. And we're not allowed to camp on our national forest lands as in, like just pulling over on one of those low maintenance roads and pitching a tent in the woods. You're not allowed to do that here. You can do that in other States and I've done it, but you can't do it here. So where I live, that's what people do. Yeah. I mean, I did it last year in, uh, in, uh, Alabama, me and some buddies went Turkey hunting up in the mountains of Alabama. We just drove around down these gravel roads in the national forest and put up our tents and we stayed there for four days. Nobody cared, but here you can't do that. So the national forest that I hunt is about an hour away from where I live. And the hunt club is like right by that forest. And so I figured when I'm, if I'm driving out that far anyway, and it's a real nice weekend, I'd like to just camp for a couple of days and spend the whole weekend hunting real hard. So now I got a place to go camping too, but I did not bait. I refused to bait. I'm still relatively new to hunting, you know? And so I want to get better at hunting deer and shooting deer. Well, you, it over sounds like you don't need to, you figured it out well enough to get the job done without it. Well, God bless you. For I wish, I, yeah, I've killed some deer since I've been here, but I wish I killed a lot more. But the thing is, like, if I'm in the woods, even if I'm on a hunt club and I'm hunting over someone's bait pile and I shoot a deer, I'm not learning anything about hunting deer, you know, right. and like I, I want to learn. I want to get better at this and I'm not learning by. So the this whole hunt club was just covered in piles of corn all season long guys driving around on ATVs all the time. Lots of pressure, lots of movement. It, I really did not enjoy the experience at all. I did kill a deer in there. I killed a doe one night when I was camping, actually. Um, I didn't go back. I, I, I didn't really like it, but the thing I wanted to talk about. Are you going to do it this, this year? Was, no, I didn't. I didn't renew. I didn't like it. So it, you're going to try the public land thing again. going to go back to public, but um one of the things I want to talk about with the hunt clubs is something that, that you've mentioned a lot is that hunting moves more and more towards this pay for play thing. And these hunt clubs, um, I paid about a thousand dollars for the dues for mine. And I've been told that to get into a real good one, you got to pay a, about $2,000 and they go up to like four or $5,000. Some guys will pay. And, uh, 
that is not going to get any cheaper, of course. And no. it's it's an example of what you're talking about, that people have put so much value in the ability to, to kill deer over bait. And I have to think that that social media has played some role in this because you know how social media is to where it's just a big, you know, dick measuring contest and a lot of categories. And, and it's really, really bad with hunting and fishing. And people always want to be able to show that they were successful and that they killed that big buck and that they can show all these people. And when I was still on Facebook, there was a South Carolina deer hunters group. And all the time you see pictures of people with this big buck that they shot and there'd be corn cops laying all over the ground. They're not even ashamed that they had to shoot over a pile of bait. They don't even care. They just want to show people, you know, these 30,000 people that were in that Facebook group that, that, that they shot that, that deer. And I have to think that the addiction to being able to instantly show this to people and get all these likes and comments and yeah, you're awesome. You know, all this stuff has got to be driving people to be willing to pay $2,000 or more to shoot deer over a pile of corn. Yeah. I I, I have to think that that's factored into it. I'm sure you've surmised that you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to argue, to argue otherwise, to argue that hunting social media and hunting TV doesn't lead to leasing is to somehow argue that, advertising doesn't work people come right. at me often and say well prove prove that hunting tv and social media cause leasing and cause crowding and make it harder more hard, more difficult to draw a tag and incentivize hunting for shitty reasons and i'm like isn't the onus of proof on you prove yeah. that i agree Prove that advertising doesn't do what it's intended to yeah. do. To, to anybody that's making that point to you, obviously has a bone in the game. I mean, oh, you're, yeah. an yeah. you're an idiot. You know, they feel like you're trying to take something away from them. It's it's a disease, man. Is what it is. It's like so. Um, a funny story I want to bring up um, in regards to the you know all the advertising and the people willing to pay a lot of money just to show people that they succeeded in hunting and show a bunch of strangers. So I mentioned to you in the email about our duck hunting plantations that we have in South Carolina. And what they do is these people will pay big money to hunt flooded, you know, unharvested corn. And a lot of these preserves will release tame mallards so that you've got something to shoot at. So uh-huh. we, we call them chicken mallards, right? Yeah. And these things are a take. problem for a lot of put reasons. Put and take hunting, right? Yeah, they're a problem for a lot of reasons because they 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 migrate and breed with with wild mallards and they and they destroy the wild genetics. They're a disease vector, so there's those issues too. But they're also just a bunch. You know, they're just stupid mallards. I mean, they're not even real. You know, they're barely real ducks, and so they're right. they're real easy. They probably to kill. taste just as good or better, but other than that, yeah. But but I mean, they're just they're 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 stupid ducks. You know, so yeah, people yeah, yeah, will, people yeah. will pay a lot of money. That's not hunting. To, not to hunt these things and so anytime that that you know when i was still on facebook anytime somebody posted mallards that they killed in south carolina people would always ask well show me the feet because they have to clip some of the some of the toenails off these to be when they have them at the preserves people would say oh yeah are they real mallards you know sh- sh- show me the feet so David, Why do they have to clip the feet so they don't scratch each other no, no, just to let you know that it's a that it's a tame it's a tame oh, mallard. Oh, so, okay, kind of like I've, clipping uh, fins on. Half it, yeah, it used to be that they had to be banded, 
Yeah. But they, they didn't want to do that anymore because people were getting excited about a band and then realizing it was a plantation release duck band and it wasn't what they thought it was. So, so then, then there was a guy started. one time who uh, who posted on – and uh, David, I'm pretty sure you saw this and remember this story. It, it, it was so funny. Some guy uh, posted saying that him and his buddy killed Lemina Mallards on uh, Stancy. And he, and he, and he, he, so he showed his tailgate with a, uh, with a bunch of mallards laying on it. And he said something like, you know, you know, you talk about there's, you know, there's no ducks at Santee, Yellowstone. I had a hunt, something like that. You know, he was really boasting, you know, he's really bragging about it. He's got a whole bunch of mallards there. And so people were like, well, show me pictures of the feet. And he's like, I ain't got to prove nothing to you. You know, just, you know, you know, you're just hating because you can't kill mallards around here and blah, blah, blah. And in the background of this picture, there was a green building. And somebody recognized that green building as being part of one of the duck plantations. And he went to that plantation's website, took screenshots of it, showing that that green building, it was like a little cottage where you can like spend the night there to go hunt the next day and put <laughs> screenshots of it. And the guy was busted. And he, he wound up taking, taking the whole post down because he was probably humiliated. And so, but, but that just shows the point, like this guy was so, obsessed with the ability to prove to a bunch of strangers that he was good enough to kill mallards, wild mallards in South Carolina, which is really hard to do. Um, I, I've killed a few, but I've not seen very many more other than the, than the few that I've killed. It's, it's very hard to do here. He was so obsessed with a bunch of strangers on social media thinking that he was so good that he could kill wild mallards in South Carolina that he was willing to pay for it, kill tame mallards, and then post it as if he accomplished killing a limit of wild mallards on public water here. Yeah. I mean, it's just pathetic. I think that, I think that that's rampant. I did a podcast yeah. with this guy, uh, Jim Durkin, who's becoming, well, he's actually going to do every other. I've listened podcast. to that. I've listened to all your, I listened to the one yesterday with the guy in uh, Pennsylvania. I listened to that one yesterday. I've listened to all of them. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Jimmy. That's, that's heartwarming to hear. And I feel like I'm getting a little bit better at it as time goes on and lots so nervous and enjoying it more. But the one with Jim Dirk and you, you, you'll probably recall then was about all the, all the poaching convictions that have been yeah. obtained with, with, hunting TV personalities. Yeah. And isn't that the same thing that you're talking about? Yeah. Because they have to post the, because they have to continually post content. And so they're willing to break the law. And that's, and that's, that's the heart of my stance is the only way to stop that is if we disengage from that shit as a group. Yeah. That's why I do. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just throwing that out there in the hope that there's enough of us out there that we really do care about the hunting, not the hunting culture, not the hunting entertainment. There's enough of us out there that really care about the hunting that we stop lending our viewership to that freaking nonsense that's ruining it for all of us. Like, when one guy watches hunting TV, that impacts my hunting. I mean, not one way I've been thinking about it. And when somebody and somebody is checking out what Cam Haynes shot last week all the time, that's negatively impacting my hunting. 
Let me give you an example of something that transpired two years ago. <clears throat> the number one watched YouTube hunting channel has become so large that they were able to influence mm-hmm. the state of Tennessee's. I know where this is going. Are you being cryptic intentionally, or can you tell me the name of the channel? Uh, THP. THP? Yeah. The, the Hunting hunt. Public. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay. And I got to give those guys credit for the way they hunt because they do hunt the right way. Yeah, I'd give them more credit if they just put the camera away. But hey, I mean, that, I guess I wouldn't know they exist. You got to give it to them. I don't even know they exist. And you got to give it to them. Those guys are straight killers, but I wish that they would put the camera down. I really do. Write, write stories about it. Let us read about it. Keep there you go. There you go. Old, old field and stream stories. I mean, yeah. I was that kid that had a backpack full of field and stream magazines and outdoor life magazines. You know, I mean, that's that's where my first inclination. That's you what know, and that's kind of where I'm more and more drawing the line to print media. If we got to have a media, maybe bet, we're better off to have a have some media. I don't know. Maybe there's yeah. unintentional. There'd be unintentional consequences of doing away with all media that I haven't conceived of. So more of the notion that you could still go back to a print media and maybe that would be okay in terms of, uh, you know, well, listen how dirty, yeah, listen how dirty this got. They literally, their, their famosity led to the state of Tennessee decreasing it's resident hunter turkey tags and increasing its non-resident turkey tags and the cost thereof. Because they smell money. The profit. Yeah. Smell the profit. And to get that media advertising out, and I don't think THP knew that this was the avenue that was going on. Might be wrong. I like to think really good about those guys. Um, but the state of Tennessee paid them for in an episode they had a if you had to pick one state as an out-of-state hunter to go to, where would it be? Tennessee paid them to say Tennessee. Mm. And mm. me being from there, I'm I'm in contact with a lot of my buddies that I used to hunt and fish with in Tennessee, and they have said that they have seen directly related to when all that went down a huge increase in pressure on public land and a lot of that pressure was from out of staters Mm -hmm. a lot of guys coming from out of state that's back to matt's point advertising works it works and And it's never it works and in this case it's always to the detriment of the hunter but it does yeah and it's so weird to me that these are the people that these people get idolized I have a very as they rob our opportunity and degrade our hunting, they are simultaneously praised for doing so. Hey, Matt, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Here's a here's something that I can tell you that will help you in your argument. A buddy of mine who is like us, um, just he has this exploratory mindset, and so. For whatever reason, he started watching these YouTube channels and just began taking great pleasure in finding exactly where they were hunting. Oh, 
and he is becoming, he doesn't go there. He's a public land hunter and he's stays strictly in the state of South Carolina. His job and his family don't he's permit him to figured out just by studying the footage closely that he can. And he wow. is, a, we play a game. Like I'll see something on a waterfowl YouTube channel and I'll say this channel minute 37 and minute 42 where are they and i figured it out and so we test back and forth he's amazing and if he is doing that you know that there's a god awful amount internet web scouters have advanced their technology this guy some of the stuff he can do now reverse imagery and everything else you guys know way about more about computers than i do I've yet to stump him on anything. And I know and these even guys. Even though he has no personal experience with these places, he can still think. None. None. He will keep, he can, he can literally identify the hunting show, identify the YouTube channel, identify where the people live at. He can do a GIS search for property. That gives him a diameter radius. He knows the people that they hunt with through social media. And he can, I can't tell you how many times I sent him a picture of a point, a rocky point, and one picture of a building that was across the way from this rocky point on a water course. And within 24 hours, he sent me a, a Google pen to where they were hunting at. Do you think this guy would come on? Highly doubtful. Oh, really? Highly Why doubtful. is that? He's just not that guy, man. Oh. He's just, yeah. He's not that guy at all. He's a very, very good friend of mine, and he feels he is way he, – he's more intense about it than you are even with what media and these shows have done. Well, then done. why but wouldn't he want to help out? He, he, he might come on, on under an alias, but his, his work and the people that he works with and the way he makes his money and his family are tied to some other stuff. I mean, so. the value in it – well, we've already reaped the value of it in a sense – well, the value the only va the value in it would be making the point that yeah. well to your point when people film hunts yeah I'm gonna know where they're at if you have any skill sets whatsoever and I'm not computer literate but to your point that somebody was saying prove that it increases pressure I mean all you have to do is send me you pick out any show that's on public land. I can watch that show, and with just a little digging, I can tell you the National Forest or the WMA they were in, because they're not covering their tracks, even though they're trying to. I mean, yeah. you'll see they're filming themselves while their Onyx is on there. You see the little blue dot, and I shouldn't right. even be saying this, because you know, I'm going to stop talking about it right now, and you understand you why. Don't I give, yeah, people, right. I've I already you. said too much. I guess you. Yeah. I already said too much. Yeah. What I just said, guys, anybody that's listening, it's a lie. It doesn't work. So, <laughs> yeah. Don't ever try to do that. I'm starting to feel guilty because I was about to send you on a wild goose chase to keep you off of my stuff. Yeah. yeah. If you ever want to think whether this, if you ever want to want to have the question answered of whether this is affecting the pressure, talk to anybody who hunts public land in, in, in Tennessee after mm -hmm. what happened with the hunting public. Okay. And they'll, they'll tell you. Everybody I've talked to there has said it's gotten way worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just go straight to their page and you can see it says where they're at, just the state. So there was a video um, and, you know, I don't remember if it was them or somebody else. I don't remember who it was. One of these, you know, big time YouTube hunting guys. 
they were, they were, uh, I, I'm not going to mention anything about the lakes. I don't want to give any, any information away that people haven't already figured out, but you know, right. yeah, well, that's antithetical to everything we're trying to yeah. do here. Right? I know exactly yeah. where this was, but there was a video where these guys were, to, were, were, were making a video hunting public land in middle Tennessee, uh, on a lake. It, it was, it, it was a, a lot of the lakes in middle Tennessee had, had, um, had public land on the shore of the lake. There are two lakes in middle Tennessee, that have public land. One of them has a lot of houses on the lake. One of them doesn't. And, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything more than that, but, but from watching the video, it was very clear to know which lake they were hunting on, even though they didn't mention it, it was very clear which lake they were hunting on. And I've talked to people who hunt the private, who hunt the public land on that lake that have said they have seen an increase in pressure since that video was released. Yeah. 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 We're starting to get into too much of how to these guys can use it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we probably, don't, we probably shouldn't say anymore. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, maybe I maybe you should edit that out. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Okay. I'll get yeah. to yeah. The thing is, my, I'm so tapped. I just don't have any extra time for editing. That's. Yeah. I understand that. I'll consider it. it yeah. It. it is there any chance in your guys' mind that people will come around not to so what I what I believe is that what I'm it's not that what I believe I'm doing is not convincing people to think like me. What I think I'm doing, and I'm open to the idea that I'm wrong about this, is gathering people together that already think like me. Is there any chance that there's enough of us that will make a difference? Yeah, I believe so. I think, you know, and, and I told you this in the email that I sent you, I think you're starting a movement and, and, and I think, you know, you're being talked about in a lot of places. Um, a lot of hunting forums, you talking about you people on Facebook. I see it on social media, people linking to the podcast that you've been on and stuff. And I think that over time you're going to see, you know, I, I don't know how many, I mean, I guess you know how many people are listening to your podcast every week, but I think you're going to see about, It's about 400 at this point. 400. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to continue to grow. I, I really do because there's a lot of people like me who are, who are ticked off because I depend on, on public land to hunt. I mean, private land, owning private land in a state like South Carolina is very, very expensive. It's, there's a lot of people moving in here. Um, South Carolina's population has exploded in the last 10, 15 years. And so land prices are going way up. I mean, so the idea of like me buying 40 or 50 acres to hunt on, I mean, that just ain't going to happen. I depend on what I'm trying to protect here is, even if I could, if even if I did buy it, I wouldn't be able to. I'd manage it, and I'd let other people on it. And that's a, another point I'm trying to make: is that we need to look out for each other. So even if you do have that forty or fifty acres, we're in this together, and we should look out for each other. And maybe let some people on it in addition to ourselves. I, I have said that uh, one day I'm gonna I'm gonna have private land to hunt, and it may not be in South Carolina, but. One of these days, because it's a goal that I'm working on, I will own private land to hunt. And I'm probably going to have a day when people are going to knock on the door and want to and ask me, you know, can I go on there and kill a deer or kill a turkey? And if they ask me nicely and they agree to my rules and they seem like respectable people, I'm going to let them hunt. Oh, you man. Know, with, See, that's, with that's, restriction, beautiful. that's beautiful. With that's restriction. What we need. That's However, what we need. 
if they knock on my door and say, can I lease your property to hunt myself? I'm going to say, leave and don't ever come back. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. What if, they show don't, wearing, don't like what if they show up wearing Sitka gear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. That'll be a... Am I out? I mean, that. if I show up in my Sitka gear, am I out? I mean, I need to know these things. Hey, oh, we got to have forgiveness and love in our hearts, man. So you know, know, David, you're allowed anytime, brother. Yeah. What about first light gear? That's that's one that just drives me nuts, Matt. Sorry. Well, yeah, and you know, there's a lot of struggles with me and my brother these days, as you might imagine. I'm trying to amass a list of companies that operate under the radar, and I found one. Well, okay, so there's a. I have a few people that are actually helping me out these days. One guy just sent me a list of several companies that he believes don't use social media influencers and hunting TV to advertise smaller companies. And this weekend I'm going to spend some time going through it and, and probably contact them that I've interviewed one guy from a company called T and K hunting gear in South Dakota. And he does not, he doesn't, he doesn't hype it all up. He doesn't have a pro staff freaking team or whatever. I have another guy coming on tomorrow night. He used to be a Pixar. No, he, still, he used to be a Pixar animator, believe it or not. He worked on all the big Pixar films, but now he has a camel company called Gulch Gear. And I've had three phone conversations with him, and I really got the impression that he wasn't wasn't advertising aggressively using hunting celebrities and stuff like that. But then just yesterday I talked to him to firm up our date and in passing said something about his pro staff. So I'm not sure where, whether I'm going to end up endorsing him or not. But the point is, I think I do wonder if the industry would stand up and take notice if hunters started buying for prop, buying their, their gear from companies that weren't trying to hype it up and commercialize it. I think um, that's literally the only way that you're going to make them take notice. Money's going to yeah, talk. I mean, yeah. money is what got Jim, us to where we are now, right? You know, all the money and hunting, that's what got us into this into this situation we're in now. That's literally the only way um, that we're going to reverse course, that, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll buy that. So then the real question becomes – Will we be able? Will we be able to get hunters to look out for themselves enough that they start to buy from these companies? I hope yeah, so. The economic, you know, being that I am a private enterprise guy, I think you can do that. You're going to have to have someone that's an absolute stalwart with a backbone made out of a, a four by four oak, because as soon as he grows. Somebody's buying him, and he's not going to oh, turn down millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's what I know. Aside from wildlife, it's economy. Yeah, I'll buy. I'll buy that. But yeah, maybe if it becomes part of the hunting zeitgeist, where yeah. part and parcel of looking out for your own hunting is buying from companies that operate under the radar. You Those know, two things become intricately linked. 
Then maybe. I think, is it ASOT or Predator camo? A buddy of mine just went out and met the guy. It might be Predator. I think it is Predator. And he still sews all of his stuff in his own shop, all American-made stuff. I'll have to ask my buddy. He just bought some. Would you, would, you, would you please? Yeah. I would. I would. I'd really yeah. appreciate it. If yeah. You would, if I'm you pretty would. sure it's, it's Predator. Predator? Well, you don't even need to. If that's the name of them. Uh, yeah, the company. Just, I'll look into it myself. Yeah, it's Predator Camo, and okay. he's just an old fella in a mom and pop shop. His material is really good. His cuts are not the best, but they work. I mean, you know, all my hunting clothes is I, I buy old old stuff. I don't buy any new gear whatsoever, and it's all. I got rid of all my Chinese junk from Toxie and that crowd. And, you know, all my stuff's either old McAllister or something of that nature. I do have the old original scent lot that's about to fall apart, which is neither here nor there. But, you know, I've been talking about creating a company that that does something like that. I was originally talking about doing it for Turkey Vest, but, man, God, the hurdles that you got to go through now, it's insane. I don't have the time for it. but I'm all about supporting that. If nothing else, just don't buy Chinese crap. You know, when it comes to hunting gear, buy made in America. And well, that's a whole other yeah. issue. That's a whole different uh, podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, my concerns are. But I agree. Buying, with you. From, buying from companies that aren't yeah. trying to commercialize yeah. the shit out of hunting. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult task there for sure. Because why have a company if you're not going to make money? But well, make okay, yeah. I just here's the thing. It's for me. It's the the whole not. I think that there's a lot of people that are out hunting and killing more shit than they need because they're trying to get sponsors and and make money off of it. And I got a friend who does that. I got a I got a personal friend of mine. I'm not going to mention his name, but personal friend of mine. I've known him for many years. Uh, he's quite popular on on YouTube with his hunting channel, and he's a damn good public land hunter, man. Really, really good. And he winds up killing a lot of deer that he's not going to eat, and he'll even say, "I'm donating this to Hunters for the Hungry." Yeah. And I mean, an organization that I oppose, by the way. Yeah, and I mean, it's just you know, it it bothers me a little bit because, you know, and again, I'm not knocking him. I, like, he, he's a personal friend. He, he's a great guy, but I don't all these like people I'm talking about that. in some cases, I'm talking about my freaking relatives with this stuff. I just, not about yeah, whether they're like the fact that he does it because beings. he's killing a wild animal, not because he wants to eat it because he wants to make another YouTube video so we can run ads and get yeah. more money off of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't like that. That's why I'm trying to find companies that don't feed into it. Yeah. Well, um, I'm with you, Matt. We got to do something to mainstream hunting ethics, fair chase, keeping your mouth shut, doing it the right way. Do you remember Tread Barta? Mm-mm. You don't know Tread Barta the hard way? Well, I've never been big on following hunting media. Yeah, well, Even before was, I was opposed to it, I just wasn't interested in it. Uh, Tread started with written media and then had a, a hunting show. And his whole show was absolutely no shortcuts, absolutely fair chase. Everything he did was with a traditional bow. 
and his show was 90% failure. Oh. His show was actually, now he was a, could be a dickhead. I knew him personally. Um, but his show inspired a lot of people to take the challenge of true fair chase. And it was, he's dead now. Um, but he was, he was a machine, man. I mean, mm-hmm. he would call it just, you and him have share a lot of characteristic personalities. Um, he well, was not really, I mean, maybe, maybe, but he still is making hunting TV. And I, yeah, well, he was, he was independently wealthy. He was just trying to spread the message of like, Hey, failure is a part of hunting. And I felt, yeah, constantly. yeah, yeah. And, and, and maybe in his era, that was the, yeah, well, he's that was one of the, the big problem. The big problem now is too much hype, in my view. But yeah. well, it started so, with real tree and mossy oak, you know. Bottom line. What's so, that? Matt, Say that again? I said oh. it started with real tree and mossy oak. Oh, it with oh, oh, right. yeah. So Matt, let me ask you something. Um, you know, you mentioned that I've got a social media presence and you don't approve of that. So, so uh I, I wanted to I, I just want to get your opinion on what I was doing before. I'm just curious what you think about it. I'm not doing it anymore, but I left Facebook for a number of reasons. That oh, really I thought you still had an Instagram. I don't. I, I don't see no. the big distinction between Instagram and Facebook. You got to help me. Well, they're that. owned by the same company, but I, I got rid of Facebook for a while, um, a, a, a while ago for a lot of reasons. But I, but I have an Instagram page that I. It was 100% dedicated to ways that I was cooking wild game and trying to think outside the box to where like you don't have to do everything with bacon and cream cheese, you know, stuff like that, and. Um, I was, you know, I, I, I admit that when I was sharing recipes, I used to have a website too. I, I deleted that. I don't have it anymore, but I had recipes on there and stuff. And I'd have people message me who I didn't even know and be like, man, you just taught me something real cool. I used to always make jerky out of all my deer roasts because I didn't know what to do with them otherwise. And now I've learned how you made, you know, you either smoked this one or you made pastrami or you made some, some ragu with it or something like that. And, you know, you really helped me learn how to cook new things. And I, I used to to like that 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 I was helping people, but the way that that this whole thing started with me and the culinary aspect of wild game was my first duck hunting experience when my buddy took me to Arkansas. I remember, you know, I, I this is my first time ever going duck hunting. I was still pretty new to hunting, and I didn't know much about cooking ducks or even cleaning them. But when we killed our ducks and we went back to this duck camp on this place that we were hunting, the first thing I did was I started pulling feathers. And my buddy said, no, we don't do that here. I was like, what do you mean we don't do that here? I, everything I've, the little bit I know about duck hunting is that duck fat is amazing. You're supposed to pluck the duck and use the whole thing. And he's like, no, listen, you don't do that here because it's going to take you forever. And then the other people who are waiting to get in here and clean the ducks in the shack are going to get pissed at you and you're not going to get invited back. And I was like, so what do I do? And he said, you just got to rip the skin open and cut the breast out. And I... I I was new to hunting at the time, but I knew that that was wrong. I just was like, this is not right. I mean, there's all this duck fat. There's, there's legs and thighs, there's wings, there's organs inside here that you can eat. I mean, this just doesn't seem right to me, but I played along with the rules because I was new to that place and I didn't want to raise a, I didn't want to cause any problems, you know? So I did that. But as I was, as I got more and more into hunting, I realized that the majority of people were doing that. And when I got back to Tennessee, um, uh, well, I, I guess months down the road, uh, when our, when our teal season opened, I went and hunted early teal in September. I shot a bunch of teal and I plucked a lot of those and I roasted them. And the ones that I didn't pluck whole, I cut the skin 
and I, I cut the, the leg and the thigh and the breast off in one big piece with the skin on it and cooked it with the skin. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was so good. And I started to really develop the opinion that a lot of hunters were wasting a lot of meat. And, and I, I took issue with that because I didn't think it was right for people to kill ducks and just rip the skin open and cut the breast out and throw the rest away. Then I realized that people were doing that with turkeys too. People and turkey legs and thighs are a lot more meat than ducks. And a lot of people just rip the skin open, cut the breast, and they throw the rest of the turkey away. And um, I made it a point to show people that, like, when I kill a turkey, or even when I when I when I kill ducks, you know, I'll I'll pluck them and roast them whole, eat all the meat off of it, and then I'll take those carcasses and I'll I'll boil them down and make jars full of stock that I can use to. You know, typically I'll use those and, and cook rabbits and, and make rabbit stew with that stock that I made from the ducks, you know, when I when I hunt rabbits in the wintertime. And so I was really trying to drive home the point to people to use more of the animals. And I was always had the message that, like, if we're going to go out and we're going to take an animal's life, we owe it to that animal to not be lazy when it comes to utilizing the meat and the carcass and the organs, if they're edible organs, you know, and and. I've spent a lot of time doing that and I started to grow a big social media following, but then I just lost interest in it. You know, I just decided that I didn't really care that much because I started learning about how like social media algorithms work and you have to constantly post content. And I started finding myself being more concerned with what I was going to be able to post if I killed something. And that was like driving, you know, whether I would go small game hunting that day or, or, or try to go waterfowl hunting or, or do something else. You know, it, I felt like, like that was starting to influence what I was particularly going to do that day or what recipe I wanted to post or something like that. And it was getting in the way from the true motives of why I hunt, uh, being that I want to acquire natural, wild, healthy meat for my family. So I just kind of scrapped the whole thing. I got rid of the website a week ago. I made my Instagram page private and I deleted every single person from following me that I didn't know personally. So now I pretty much just have a way to keep in touch with people. Do you think that my message about, you know, utilizing the wild game properly, do you think that that would be something that would, that could be having a negative effect and causing the issues that we've talked about today? What I struggle with is there's it's awfully hard. I mean, you just seem like a really sincere guy, but it's awfully hard. It's awfully easy to to conceal one's motivations on social media, one's true motivations. It's it's easy to cloak one's motivations in something virtuous. You don't have sponsors, so that rules that. Yeah. Out. And, but I think there's a lot of people that are focusing on the food component and the field to table component that that are as every bit as motivated by bragging and trying to turn into a hunting influencer as the most braggadocious, like, Hey, look at me. I killed another big one type of person. They're just doing, they're just, they're just pandering to a different audience. So that's kind of the way I started thinking about it. And that's, like I said, that's why I scrapped all that stuff now. And now the only people who see all the cool stuff I cook with wild game is people who know me personally. That's it. That's the only people I've in contact with. You using all the meat and being creative with the meat is important and valuable. And I, 
I just see bigger problems. I, it's the return on the investment is too low because the, you invest in the social media and you can teach those lessons, but at what cost? The cost is making it harder for people to draw a tag because it's bringing more people in, making more people come into it because they too want to have a social media presence that revolves around hunting instead of having, instead of hunting for hide horns, meat, personal personal gratification, and the sense of self-reliance that comes from it. It just opens up a whole set of incentives, potential incentives, that are ruled out if you don't do it. It's hard to accuse somebody that hunts quietly of hunting for fame and money. But it's they become possibilities once you have a social media presence. So that's, and because to me, the biggest problems in hunting today are lack of access, crowding, inability to draw tags, hunter dissatisfaction. I don't see oh. social media that involves dead and dying wildlife in any way. We, um, on that note of lack of access, and I, I guess we've got to wrap this up since we've been on here for, for a while. Um, on the lack of access thing, you know, you've made the point many times, and I agree with you that if 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 these companies that push R three would stop with the R three stuff and focus a hundred percent on just opening up new opportunities for hunters, it would make our experiences better because we'd have more places to hunt. And then as a as a side effect of that, you would probably attract more hunters because we have more places to go. But it's not doing us any good to drum up all this interest in hunting, and all we're going to do is further overcrowd already overcrowded public land in South yeah. Carolina. We just build, found build it, and they will come. Exactly. So we just found out uh, here in South Carolina, all these national forest lands that Dave and I have been talking about, uh, a lot of us waterfowl hunt on these lands because there's a lot of swamps in there. And uh, those lands used to be open to hunt six days a week because you can't hunt Sunday on public land here. They just passed a regulation with no public input, nothing like that. They've limited it to Wednesday and Saturdays only to hunt waterfowl. There's no habitat improvements being done, nothing like that. So all they're doing really is just increasing the pressure on Saturdays. And it just goes, and our DNR does emphasize a lot of recruitment stuff. They've got a program called Take One, Make One, where you can sign up to be like a mentor to like mentor someone on the first hunt to get people into hunting. And so they're still doing that, but we just lost a ton of waterfowl hunting opportunity to hunt Te- temporally, not spatially, but temporally. Yeah, yeah 67, that's, that's it comes out to 67% loss in opportunity. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, and, and, and I used to hunt those those swamps in the in the Sumter National Forest. I used to hunt them a lot on Friday mornings. I had the ability to do that. I, you know, w- with my work schedule, I can usually pull that off and when I hunt there on Friday mornings, believe me, there's a lot of shooting going on in there. There's a lot of shooting. And all those people are now going to be there on Saturday. So now Saturday is going what to be What was the motivation? Active. What was the motivation? It, it started with a bill introduction for Sunday hunting. And our Department of Natural Resources is as bad a Department of Natural Resources that you will find anywhere in the nation in all things the only thing that they i can even give them slight credit for is they have initiated a uh, bring back the whistle it's a quail 
formality, a very small project, but it is a good project. It does have good basis. But we have a tyrant as a deputy director of our wildlife and freshwater fisheries. And they have that position as a position of power. They genuinely do not care about the hunter or the hunting resource. And that person cannot be removed for other stuff that I'm not going to divulge on the web. But um, they are single-handedly decimating wildlife stocks due to the empowerment of staff that does not want to work. Not all of them. There's some good old boys in there like us that are working really hard day in, day out. Those guys are also getting pushed to the corners for new hires. Um, but it was based off of, oh, my God, how are we going to manage more waterfowl hunters on a Sunday? There's no scientific basis, no pressure study, no hunt quality surveys, no nothing whatsoever. So they go to the opposite extreme and, and rule out hunting. Um, yeah, and the there was no public input or anything. There well, was no public well, input, that, no survey, nothing. That that's I've now since found out that that's incorrect. It was just buried all the way at the core of the onion, Jimmy. I mean, to the oh. core where no, I didn't even know about it. And you know how involved I am in the legislative sessions. Yeah. So they were accepting public comment, but they weren't making it public. They were accepting public. They married it so deeply, Matt, that not even I find it. That's what I dig through day in and day out. The number one waterfowl manager on the East Coast didn't know about it. The rangers within these national forests where this took place did not know about it. Um, And no substantiation scientifically nor survey-wise was there to do it. Now, here's the big thing. I just finished helping push a legislative increase on our state waterfowl stamp from $5.50 to $15.50, which passed with caveats. And that money is earmarked specifically for our category one waterfowl areas, which is our supposedly really well-managed waterfowl areas, which have just been completely neglected. And they're like, we don't have enough money, blah, 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 blah. I dug all the way into FOIAs and everything else on that. I found a $12 million project. They got $12 million. Man, it's just so corrupt. I don't want to go into it, but it's tied to Ducks Unlimited and Anaka Grant. They got the money. It was maybe $250,000 worth of work done to this facility. They invoiced for $12 million. And, and the ending product was god-awful. I went and toured it. And once they found out that I was into them, now I, they cut off all communications with me. The deputy director cut off all communications with me, like won't respond. Like I had the state attorney call me and say, if you want to coach, contact with the deputy director it has to go through me which is probably some violation of some other freaking law david is, is this the same guy who emailed me that i forwarded you the email no, from that that person okay. is just on for the deputy director okay, okay. Well, one more time i gotta try this why yeah. would they make it so that instead of people are going for seven days a week and they turn it into two days a week what was their motivation a slap back in the face of the hunters pushing for Sunday hunting. Just pure retribution. I emailed and asked why they did that. And they said that they thought that managing the pressure was going to improve the waterfowl hunting, which is ridiculous. You don't improve waterfowl hunting by limiting hunting pressure. You improve waterfowl hunting by improving waterfowl habitat. That's how you do it. 
And yeah. all they did was reduce the ability to hunt and send and funnel a lot more of that pressure into Saturday mornings. And so now Saturday mornings are going to be a freaking war zone. They already were, and now they're going to be and, even worse. So check this out, Jimmy. What that's going to do is it's going to push all of the. So what's going to happen is Monday and Tuesday start Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the wood ducks, because Matt, that's primarily what uses these areas. There are some mallards in there are going to find sanctuary now in those areas. They're, they're going to be harvested heavy on Wednesdays. Then they're going to find sanctuary Thursday, Friday, get pounded again on Saturday. So the harvest rate will actually increase. I and, can see that. I could see that. And it's also going to push those ducks to your private impoundments yep. when they are hunting. <laughs> so it's like mm. it was pure retribution, Matt. There's no scientific basis behind it. There is, if and only if you were going in there and you were going to limit the number of walk-in hunters, the first come, first serve, however many they found was going to be an appropriate number. And they increased the quality of the waterfowl habitat. But guys, I got a boogie. I've oh, man, two. same. I'm pretty yeah. exhausted. You know what's funny? Yeah. Though? What I feel like I could talk to you guys. I, we could film a podcast every night for a month. Because Easily. you obviously have a lot to impart. So I'm hoping this isn't the last time you come on. I encourage you to reach out to me at any point. I'd be glad to have you on again. I appreciate everything you guys are doing. I can, it's completely obvious that you're out there for the right reasons and are doing trying to do the right thing. And I really, you are the sort of hunters I'm concerned about. And I'm so glad you're out there. So glad you're doing what you're doing please reach out to me at any time and thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Yeah. Guys. Let's try to do it again. Thanks okay. everybody. Have a good night. You guys thanks too. Thanks for coming this call. Later. Bye.